KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, July 2nd. The Convention Center Migrant Shelter is closing. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The NAACP San Diego branch is calling on the California Interscholastic Federation, or the CIF, to reinvestigate other racist incidents at local high schools this year. The call follows the CIF's decision on Wednesday to vacate the Coronado High School boys basketball team's championship win after tortillas were thrown at their opponents of Orange Glen High, a largely Latino team. Francine Maxwell is the president of the NAACP. She says a similar incident occurred not long ago where a cathedral Catholic football player wore a t-shirt saying Catholics versus convicts and posted the image on social media in reference to their opponents at Lincoln High. She's calling on the CIF to reopen the investigation against cathedral Catholic and apply stricter sanctions. Mayor Todd Gloria released a new report on findings on how to strengthen the city's ability to prevent and end homelessness in San Diego. The report comes from Matthew Doherty, the former executive director of the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness. His report had four main findings. The city needs better leadership in the area, needs better communication of strategy and vision, needs to strengthen its internal partnerships, and needs to take advantage of current opportunities such as funding from the American Rescue Plan. And the recall election against California Governor Gavin Newsom has been set for September 14th of this year. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The San Diego Convention Center has played a huge role in providing temporary housing to thousands of unaccompanied migrant children for the past three months. But as the facility prepares to reopen for summer events, the shelter is closing. KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell has the latest on efforts to help reunify children with their sponsors. Mayor Todd Gloria confirming in a tweet Wednesday night that the last of the children staying at the convention center had left the city. We spoke to the mayor Thursday. He expressed his gratitude to those involved in the effort. I think every San Diego could be proud of what happened in that convention center, the way that all these organizations, public, private, nonprofit, all working together to just protect these kids. Um, that's what we should do. It should be a no-brainer. Um, and San Diego absolutely stepped up. Since the opening of the shelter at the convention center in late March, the Department of Health and Human Services says more than 2,400 unaccompanied children have been reunified with their sponsors. A recent report by the Department of Homeland Security says apprehensions of unaccompanied children for the month of June are down by 21 percent from their peak of 19,000 in March. As workers at the shelter begin to break down operations at the convention center, 
The CEO of the Metropolitan Area Advisory Committee, Arnulfo Manriquez, says the feeling is bittersweet. About 150 staff members with MAC worked with the children at the convention center. They were one of many organizations that provided services at the shelter. From making sure the children were well cared for to creating engaging activities and educating them. Education plays a big part of it as well. And also understanding, they, they go through a process of understanding what their situation is and what their rights are. Manriquez says meaningful impacts were made between staff and the children. Just like when you get an attachment to a teacher in your class and you love your teacher and then, you know, 20 years later, you still remember the impacts of that teacher had. I believe we'll continue to have uh, uh, opportunities to step up and serve, and I believe that we will. It may not be at the convention center. It may be more modest efforts. Gloria says San Diego will continue to be a welcoming city for all. And that was KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell. The COVID-19 pandemic has been hard on many people's mental, physical, and economic health, especially in San Diego's immigrant communities. KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us about how a group of peer counselors in City Heights are trying to heal the community by both connecting people with much-needed services and by just listening to them. Case numbers for the COVID-19 pandemic are down this summer. But the devastation the pandemic wrought on immigrant communities in San Diego is still very much being felt. Hamadi Jumali, the executive director of the Somali Bantu community of San Diego, can hear it in the voices of the people who call him at all hours, looking for help in a desperate situation. I think in, our, in the community, a lot of the, with the, a lot of the community doesn't know their rights. Uh, and with working with, this, with the community, we, we are educating the community. Help is out there. Thanks to a steady stream of federal and state funding to stave off evictions, help people make up lost income, and get utility bills paid. But connecting these communities to help in languages they actually understand has been a challenge after such a chaotic year. While Jumali takes these types of emergency calls as part of his regular job, he's now joined by over 24 other crisis counselors, part of a project that began in March from the San Diego Refugee Communities Coalition, Cal Hope Counseling Project, and the United Women of East Africa. The project came together after a study found immigrants in San Diego were three times more likely to be unemployed than other San Diegans. Increased anxiety around um, health monitoring, you know, loss of jobs, the physical isolation um, from support systems and communities. This pandemic has impacted the refugee and new immigrant community more than the general population. That's Claire Enemark. She's helping to lead this program, which uses federal emergency money to train crisis counselors who can speak with immigrant communities in their own languages. Right now, help is available in 18 different languages. Immigrants can call a single number, then get put through to someone who speaks their language. The counselors are pulled from 11 local community organizations, many of which are based in City Heights. The organizations have close ties to the local refugee and asylum seeker communities. Our program is really unique. Um, one of the, the main aspects that makes our program unique is it's a peer-based workforce. So we have 25 community support navigators who themselves are refugee and new immigrants. So they have this lived experience of surviving the pandemic, right, as we all have. But they have survived the pandemic with this, ex this unique experience. Flyers advertising the program 
have been distributed at immigrant-owned marketplaces throughout City Heights, and its number has been shared on WhatsApp message groups, all trying to reach the community where it's at. The hope is that the counseling program meets all the needs of people at the moment of crisis, acknowledging that a financial crisis can easily segue into one involving someone's mental health. One of our community support navigators, uh, a client reached out to her, said that he needed some help in paying his utility bill. He wasn't able to pay his utility bill. Um, and in that process, he opened up to our community support navigator that his wife had died of COVID just a few months earlier. Had our staff not been providing some of that essential, practical support up front, he might not have felt comfortable opening up. For Jamali, who's already been doing this work for years, he's just happy to see there's a new generation of peer counselors getting trained. What he wants to see the most, though, are mental health professionals and social workers coming out of the community. Well, we, in, with the next generation, we, we want to make sure that we have uh, our psychiatrist, we have uh, counseling in our community because uh, we feel like uh, community members need the people that they speak their language. The program is slated to run through the fall. Its leaders hope that further funding allows for the program to continue as long as the mental and financial impacts of the pandemic are still being felt. Anyone looking for help can call 888-222-0980. And that was KPBS's Max Revlin Nadler. State prisoners play a critical role in battling California's wildfires. But as iNews Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano reports, those inmates are still under a strict COVID-19 rule that's affecting their morale at their living quarters. Inmate firefighters live at one of 35 low-security camps in rural areas of California. Spouses and children used to join them on the grounds for picnics and barbecues. When the COVID-19 pandemic began, the Corrections Department banned in-person visitations. Now, 16 months later, families are still waiting to see their loved ones face to face. He hasn't had a hug. He hasn't had like physical touch for that long. That's Jillian Case. Her husband lives at a fire camp outside Reading. Once higher security prisons resumed visits in April, Case thought she would be allowed back at the fire camp soon. But it hasn't happened yet. That's a grueling job to do for a dollar an hour. And the benefit of it is you get to have these visits with your family and it's much less like institutionalized. And now it just kind of seems like that's not really a big benefit. The Corrections Department says it's in the final stages of developing a plan to resume visits at fire camps. And that was Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano. Source is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Coming up, a new study from UC Berkeley says residential segregation in San Diego has only gotten worse over the years. Plus, we have a new film review from our film critic, Beth Accomando. All of that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
When you're out and about in San Diego, it might seem like an incredibly diverse place. But what do you see when you're back in your own neighborhood? Do you see the same mix of races and ethnicities? Chances are the answer is no. San Diego's residential segregation has worsened over the past generation, and new research from UC Berkeley lays it out. Haley Smith wrote about this for the LA Times, and she spoke with KPBS's Christina Kim on the roundtable. Here's that interview. Okay, so UC Berkeley calls their research the Roots of Structural Racism Project. What did researchers hope to learn from this study? Well, I think they hope to learn a few things. First, they wanted to chart changes in segregation, so i.e. whether segregation is improving in major metropolitan areas. They also wanted to look at the outcomes for people who live in and are raised in segregated communities, which are notably worse for people in highly segregated communities of color. And I believe that they called the project the roots of structural racism because as the study's author said to me, residential racial segregation is really the undercurrent of so many expressions of structural racism in the country from health disparities to over-policing. You write that more than 80% of metro areas across the U.S., so those are cities with at least 200,000 people, they grew more segregated over the last 30 years. Were you surprised by that? Were the researchers surprised by that? I think that in terms of who was surprised by that, it probably depends on who you ask. I imagine that people who have been living, you know, have lived these experiences probably aren't shocked by those findings. Where do California's metro areas fit in there? So California did not do great overall. I I believe that they measured uh, 17 metro areas in the state and 14 of them got worse in terms of racial segregation. Only three areas measured any improvement, but there's a big caveat there, which is that LA was one of the areas that saw improvement, but it was like 0.01 diversion on the studies index, which is negligible. So essentially LA saw no change in uh, residential racial segregation since 1990. In terms of San Diego, San Diego was one of the areas that actually saw its segregation um, numbers get worse in the last 30 years. However, in terms of overall rankings, LA is the sixth most segregated metro area in the study and San Diego is number 38. So you've got us a little bit there. So you've kind of explained this a little bit, but when we say more segregated, I mean, what is that measurement? If you're just listening, you're hearing, oh, San Diego is more segregated than it was 30 years ago. Like, how do we begin to measure that or even feel that, see Mm -hmm. that? So I am not one of the researchers uh, who conducted this study, but I did speak to them at length. And essentially, they have kind of created a diversity index, which they use to calculate segregation and the change in segregation over time in a lot of areas. And notably, um, and part of the reason why they chose 1990 as a base year for the study wasn't because 1990 was a, you know some particular turning point in segregation in America. That was the first year that the census started tracking more granular data on the Latino and Hispanic community. So by incorporating that and incorporating some other communities of color, they were able to get a more clear picture of segregation and and patterns of segregation. Right. So you're kind of saying they chose 1990 because that allowed us to go away from the black and white binary to have a richer understanding. You've already alluded to this, but the project goes well beyond race and where people live. It also found a correlation to personal outcomes like life expectancy, earning power, and home values. Is there anything that really stands out to you from the research? 
Um, yeah, uh, you know, again, I think that people who live in and are from some of these communities probably wouldn't be shocked by some of the findings, but it does stand out and it is striking to see it quantified so clearly. So as you mentioned, um, life outcomes, which include things like income, education, home ownership, even life expectancy, are worse for people who live in highly segregated neighborhoods of color. And I actually pulled some specific numbers here. I'm gonna read them because I did not memorize them, sorry. But um, black children raised in integrated neighborhoods earn nearly $1,000 more per year as adults than those raised in highly segregated communities of color and $4,000 more per year when they're raised in white neighborhoods. And the numbers are really similar for Latino children who earn $844 more per year as adults when they're raised in integrated neighborhoods and 5,000 more when they're raised in white neighborhoods. And pretty much the best life outcomes in all categories remained in highly segregated white areas. So you wrote about this in your piece, but a lot of this goes back to redlining, which was a practice that really denied home ownership and other financial services to people based on their race. And it goes back to the 20s. You said that that's really foundational for the inequities that we see today. So how did redlining and kind of all of that history make it hard for true integration to take root? Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really important part of this, you know, this story. So first, I want to acknowledge that very much of Los Angeles and, and California was founded um, on native land. But in terms of the, the sort of divisions and what we're looking at for this study, are very 20th century and 21st century developments in terms of how the cities have been laid out. And so this practice of redlining, it began as a sort of informal practice of prohibiting certain people from buying homes or living in certain neighborhoods, but it was actually codified in the 1930s by the Homeowners Loan Corporation and the um, Federal Housing Administration. So you can actually you know, go on Google and look at some of these old redlining maps, which clearly outline which neighborhoods are meant for certain people. They're labeled with things like desirable or declining. And the reason that that is so important is because those early sort of redline segregations sort of created a vicious cycle where the people who were sort of relegated to the less attractive parts of the city became associated with those parts of the city. And then as the years went on, those neighborhoods were kind of consistently disenfranchised. So you see things like food deserts developing or um, a lack of infrastructure, or even freeways, you know, being placed right through the neighborhood, which creates more pollution and sort of keeps them under uh, undesirable and sort of continues that cycle. And what's really interesting is that if you look at some of these historic redlining maps and you overlay them with maps of the COVID-19 pandemic, they line up very, very patly. So the communities that we know were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, which in LA was largely black and Latino communities, those maps fit very much over the pandemic and over the redlining. And the same thing is true for the vaccine, um, which was disproportionately rolled out at the beginning to those communities as well. The LA Times, KPBS, so many of us are reporting on the current housing crisis, the high costs of living in California and gentrification that's happening in a lot of neighborhoods. How does this all kind of connect, especially when we're looking at integration? How might these kind of practices actually lead to more segregation now? Yeah, you know, I had the same question because I think that when you think of gentrification, you often think like, great, people are 
are mingling and look at that, you know, white people are at grocery stores and restaurants with Asian people or Latino people or people in other communities that they might not necessarily have been um, integrated with. But ultimately what ends up happening is that those gentrified neighborhoods become more and more gentrified by white people, but it's also wealthy people. And I should mention that, you know, a lot of other um, segregation studies have also found similarities in, in terms of income segregation. So I'll say white or wealthy people end up pushing those communities um, further and further out. And what happens is these neighborhoods down the line get re-segregated. I mean, I'm just going to ask this because I'm curious to see mm -hmm. what, what you think, but it's just like, so then how do we integrate? If integration often looks like gentrification, is there a formula or a process where we can have more integrated communities in which no one is being displaced? I think there probably is. I think that like a lot of the barriers to entry to entry for a lot of these neighborhoods need to be addressed. So even things like more housing density in some of these neighborhoods or allowing more low income units to be built in some of these tonier neighborhoods could go a long way for that. Unfortunately, what we see a lot of times is a lot of resistance to those things. So I think it's an uphill battle. I don't think it's impossible, but um, yeah, you're right. It has been hard to cross those lines in the past. We've all been living in this moment, right? This resurgence of a civil rights movement with the protests last summer, especially around policing. Do you expect folks to get more involved in kind of these more mundane policy issues that affect our communities and the people that live in them? I think that would be a really great step for people to take who are interested in, you know, kind of doing more of that work and, and addressing some of these blind spots. Um, but we also know that policies can tend to move at a glacial pace. So um, I think there's definitely still a lot of work that, that needs to be done. And one thing, you know, speaking of this, as you said, resurgence of the civil rights movement is that a lot of researchers who study this are very concerned about the results of the 2020 census. The Trump administration sort of made it pretty hard for people. Um, there was a, a question about um, documentation status, which deterred a lot of people from responding. So I think that unfortunately the results are going to be a bit skewed, particularly for the Latino community in Southern California, which is going to make it harder to allocate the necessary resources and sort of address the problems in these neighborhoods if we can't even have an accurate sense of who's living there. That was Haley Smith, a staff writer for the LA Times, speaking with KPBS's Christina Kim on The Roundtable. You've probably heard of Woodstock, right? But have you heard of the Harlem Cultural Festival that happened that same summer of 1969? Most likely not. The new film Summer of Soul accesses a treasure trove of never-before-seen footage to create a vivid documentary about the event. KPBS's film critic Beth Accomando has this review. Over the course of six weeks in 1969, veteran TV producer Hal Tolchin filmed the Harlem Cultural Festival. Then the footage sat in his basement for 50 years because he couldn't get anyone interested in turning it into a documentary. Because the revolution will not be televised. Now, musician and first-time director Amir Questlove Thompson has crafted a film that both celebrates the amazing event as well as placing it into a larger social context. Thompson interviews attendees and artists and plays footage that they never knew existed. Their reaction creates a beautiful swell of emotions. Musa Jackson, who went as a small child, recalls, It was the ultimate black barbecue. 
And then you start to hear music, and you knew it was something bigger. Summer of Soul is an exhilarating portrait of an event that showcased a broad spectrum of black culture and then sets that celebration against the turbulent political backdrop of the 1960s. So take a trip back in time and immerse yourself in this glorious film. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.